Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, June 28th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we've got the latest in the round of bank stress tests. Visa is moving past its failed bid for Plaid. JP Morgan is wading deeper into the mortgage market. We'll wrap things up with a couple of stocks to watch. Joining me, as always, it's Certified Financial Planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? I am doing great. It's a sunny, hot day in South Carolina. Hopefully, it's an, at least nice out where you are. Well, it is a sunny, hot day here in Northern Virginia as well. So, I mean, hey, listen, it's summer. It, it should be sunny and hot, right? At least we got the pool open. And if I understand, I understand correctly, Matt, you have a pool now. Is that right? Yeah, if it gets much hotter, I might actually broadcast while I'm <laughs> waiting in the pool. That that I I, I want to be there for that. I want to be there for that. Give me give me a little heads up if that's coming down the pike, and we'll uh, we'll make sure to uh, adjust the show accordingly. Uh, <laughs> Matt, we had a lot of of interesting news that came out through the course of last week, and let's go ahead and just get to uh, really what is the lead story? I think for the week, you and I both agree that the latest round of stress tests. Uh, it, it, I, I thought. This was interesting from a number of different angles, uh, but, but I mean, first and foremost, it does. It appears like all U.S. banks. I mean, we, the, the all all big banks here uh, domestically are are in pretty good shape now. I mean, given what, given the purpose that these stress tests serve, um, I mean, I think we can all kind of get behind why they exist. It sounds like uh, all, all 23 banks here are, according to the Federal Reserve, in pretty good shape if we run into uh, another economic downturn. Yeah, and in, in a lot of ways, I feel like this was less of a, a headline than it, what it has been in years past. Because when you think about it, banks have just went through an actual stress test. <laughs> um, True. So, so remember, at the, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, banks plunged more than most kinds of stocks in the market. And the reason was people didn't know if they could handle that kind of stress because the stress test the Fed puts them through was a lot milder in a lot of ways than what the COVID pandemic put them through. Um, the, for example, the stress test they just used uh, projected a 55% drop in the stock market, which was about a little more than the S&P had, but it projected a peak unemployment rate of 10.8%. In the peak of COVID, we had an unemployment rate that was more than that. So banks were just through a stress test. So it wasn't too surprising, but this was definitely good news that all 23 institutions that were subject to the stress test, remember, it's only the biggest ones that have right. to do it, um, you know, passed with flying colors. So I mean, it, minimum capital levels would have stayed more than double the regulatory minimums, even in that severe downturn. So that's pretty impressive. They would collectively lose almost half a trillion dollars. So it wouldn't be any, you know, the stock prices would probably go down if that were to happen. <laughs> um, but the banks would survive. And that's really the important part. Um, I mean, the reason for these regulations isn't to protect the stockholders. It's to protect the American public from from bank failures. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you made that point because, I mean, I'm sure there are varying opinions on this. I mean, too much regulation versus not enough regulation. But it, it really does seem like this comes from the right place. I mean, it, it, it does come from a place where it's trying to make sure essentially our entire system doesn't just collapse. I mean, given given how 
crucial a role uh, all, all of these these lenders play in our in our entire economy. And it was very easy, I think, for consumers just to think, oh, well, that's the bank that charged me those overdraft fees, and they're trying to rip me off, and they charge me for my account uh, monthly or whatever. Maybe there's a little bit of a different perception there versus, I mean, you and I know, I mean, many of us know how these these banks make their money in lending. And, uh, you know, the, the more money they lend out, the more exposure that is, and, and you run into an economic downturn. I mean, all of the, all of all of a sudden, the dots become a little bit more connected. It becomes a little bit more apparent, and uh, and, and it certainly seems to me like these stress tests. This this comes from a good place. You know, a lot of um, like twenty somethings and early thirties investors might not remember before these stress tests existed in you know in like two thousand eight two thousand nine. The, there was a legitimate chance that the financial system would have collapsed. I had felt that way to, to um, a lot of us, I think. Know, without the big banking bailout. And they don't, want need, need, they don't want the need for future bailouts of these banks either. So it's a really kind of necessary piece of the puzzle. And the stress tests are getting a little more flexible over time. And that's one thing I want to talk about in a minute. But in general, like this is a good thing for consumers, for the market in general, because um, the COVID pandemic was tougher on the economy in a lot of ways than the financial crisis was. Yeah. Um, yeah. The financial crisis didn't make the economy grind to a halt. Um, I mean, at the time, I was still a, a grad student. I was working at a restaurant. The restaurant stayed open. The college was still open. Uh, people were still going out to eat. Like You know, it, it, it wasn't as devastating of an economic event as the COVID pandemic was. Um, and a lot of it was due to the stimulus is why the banks handled it, handled it so well. Um, but... It, it a lot of it has to be attributed to these stress tests and just kind of the the increased regulation and increased oversight when it comes to how much capital these banks have to keep because before it really wasn't there. What do you think? I mean, I think the the natural uh, sort of segue with with this uh, latest round of tests. I mean, the conversation to me now pivots, um, at least for investors, it pivots towards. Um, something that, that banks are notorious for is investments. I mean, dividends and buybacks, right? I mean, that that's something where I mean, a lot of a lot of banks they have have more or less had the the freedom to be able to continue those policies, save a few. But it does feel like now, I mean, e- even if it's not something that necessarily green lights, something that was already greenlit for many, th- this problem to me, it seems like this this might result in accelerating. Dividend growth and and share repurchases. Uh, what's your take there? Yeah, I think that's kind of an understatement, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, no, the the stress the stress test um, methodology in normal years was that the banks passed the stress test, then they had to submit their capital plan to the Federal Reserve. You know, uh, we want to buy back ten billion dollars worth of stock. We want to pay X amount of dividends, and then they had to get the the regulator's stamp of approval on that. That's no longer going to be the case starting this year. This was supposed to change last year, but was put on hold because of the pandemic. Now they have what's called the stress capital buffer framework. This essentially says that as long as a bank keeps a minimum amount of capital prescribed by the Federal Reserve based on its riskiness, it can pay whatever dividends and buy back as many shares as it as it comfortably wants to. That makes sense. This can be a big deal for banks, especially the ones that have really been limited by this, like Wells Fargo, for example. Um, but now banks can, it's really, they can do whatever they want. They don't have to get regulatory approval beyond meeting a certain capital buffer for how much they want to buy back. And by the way, the reason you haven't seen a, a whole bunch of announcements about this yet 
from the individual banks is the Fed asked them to hold off till Monday afternoon, which is then. <laughs> um, so by the time you're hearing this, if you're here, if you're gonna, if you're listening to this on iTunes or whatever, um, by the time you're hearing this, you might have noticed a bunch of press releases trickling out, yeah, yeah. and you might have been surprised at the size of them, and that's why because uh, this year banks can really, you know, really go for it when it comes to returning capital to shareholders. I feel like next week we <laughs> we may have a great opportunity. We should keep an eye on this over the course of the next 24 hours to see how many of these announcements do come out and, and the reactions uh, from the market on their respective uh, stocks. For sure, 23 banks. I might need you for the whole hour next week. I <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, I'll be able to uh, give you a little bit more of my time. I think it'd be a fun conversation. Definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Um, real quick, before we move on to the next story, this is something that that I, I you know, I always banks are are so to me an interesting investment idea from a number of different angles, given the role that they play in the economy. I mean, I do I do like as as I get older. I mean, to me, they seem like they would be a nice. Uh, way to get a little bit of that that income diversification in one's portfolio uh, feels like they are on better footing now. Um, hopefully, you know we don't see the same the magnitude of, of of the same type of of reactions if something bad happens like we saw uh, back in two thousand eight, nine, ten. Um, by the same token, I I also love those small banks. We talk a lot about uh, you know uh, Ameris Bancor, for example, on on this show here, um, in a number of others. Where, where do you where do small banks fit into this discussion here? Because it seems like, I mean, of course they're smaller, they have fewer resources, they're going to be more at risk for something uh, like an economic downturn. But, but but the flip side of that coin is because they're smaller, because they have uh, fewer resources. Perhaps the management teams manage those banks a little bit differently, and they don't have that same level of exposure. I mean, is is there is there a trade off that investors need to be aware of? Is is it one versus the other, or is it is it just hey, have some big banks, have some small banks, and and, and that makes that makes for for a good combo. Well, with with small banks, just like any smaller stocks in an industry, you can expect a little more volatility. But it's important to really point out that you know. Just because these banks, the smaller banks, don't have to submit to the stress tests, doesn't mean they can just do whatever they want. <laughs> it's not like it's not like heavily regulated risk versus no regulations in the wild west over there in, in the small bank land. You know, these banks still keep pretty high levels of capital, much more than before the financial crisis. There's a whole lot of different regulations in the individual industries that are kind of adjacent to banking, like mortgages, that didn't exist before the financial crisis. Um, so there are a lot of regulations protecting consumers, even when it comes to smaller banks. Having said that, smaller banks have higher growth opportunities. Um, uh, Ameris is one that you follow. I know. I could I, Live, I, Oak, I may, Live Oak, another one we talk about. On the or Live show, Oak. Huh? Yeah. I can make the case that either of those will double in size before J.P. Morgan Chase will. Um, so more growth potential, but that also means more execution risk in in growing. Um, so I would say more volatility, more risk opportunity. Um, I'd say with smaller banks, it's more important to be diversified. Um, like every time I mention a smaller bank, you name a couple extras and that's a good <laughs> thing because you, you kind of think of it like from the basket approach. Sure. sure. Um, whereas like JP Morgan Chase, I would say is like an all in, if you want to put 10% of your money in banking, you could put it all in JP Morgan Chase and make the case for doing that. Or or Wells Fargo, or Wells I mean, Fargo, you know, or, ba- or Bank of America, or any yeah. of those big ones. Yeah. They're more like standalone financial sector investments. Whereas 
I wouldn't put 10% of my portfolio in Live Oak, even though I love the company. Um, so, and it's because it has a ton of growth potential, but also a ton more volatility than, than you could expect from some of the bigger names in the space. Well, hey, maybe an idea for a future show then, Matt, and let's just kick this around, a small bank basket. You know, maybe there's something there. Maybe we come up with a small bank basket and five small banks that we think uh, are worth owning. I don't know. We'll see what the listeners think. They'll hear that suggestion. They'll chime in and, and, and we'll go from there. But what would you think? Yeah, I, I'd be in for that. I'd actually like to hear some basket ideas. I think that could be a, we could do a basket series. All right. Well, I think that'd we'll be cool. I want to hear some basket ideas. We'll keep that in mind. And, and, and hey, listen, I mean, you, you already you already lit the fire here. We're, we're going to get some suggestions, I'm sure. And some will be good. Some will be less than good. But but we'll work with what we got. And, yeah, I mean, uh, and maybe I'm, we'll I'm, come up with something. I'm a little more boring. There's only so many REIT baskets you can do. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll we'll see where this conversation takes us as, as the weeks go on. Uh, Matt, in January, it was announced that Visa was not going to be going through with its plan to acquire financial services company Plaid, uh, and that was primarily due to antitrust concerns. Not not a shock. I mean, certainly it was a risk that we all acknowledged existed. Uh, it it. It became a reality, but that didn't stop Visa's management's wheels from turning. Uh, Visa just announced they are going to now acquire a Swedish fintech startup company called Tink uh, for $2.1 billion. Um, I I wonder, how do you feel about this deal? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like, given the size of the business, it doesn't seem like they're would be necessarily the same antitrust concerns, particularly because I think that the, the debit connection that existed with Plaid, I don't think that same connection exists with Tink. But nevertheless, I mean, $2.1 billion, that's 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 a lot of money. Does this deal make sense? Yeah, and, and Tink is entirely focused on the European market, which I think will help with regulatory issues as well. Um it's definitely a replacement for Plaid in Visa's kind of strategy. It's pretty obvious that, that <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a clear replacement. Um, but having said that, it's a small, somewhat smaller company. They're paying two point one billion, which, I mean, Plaid's valued at something like thirteen billion on the open on the private market. But I think Visa was going to acquire it for four or five billion. That deal, yeah, that deal was something like five and a half billion. Yeah, so it, it's yeah. I'd say this is about half the size of the Plaid deal. Um, when you just when you look at the price Visa is paying, um, it's an all cash transaction. Uh, Tink, Tink is a player in open banking, just like Plaid was, or is I should say. Um, they essentially kind of open up consumers' banking information with their with their permission. You usually, have to check a box or something for this to for your information to actually be out there securely. Um, but it shares your information with other with all these lenders, fintechs, things like that, to kind of optimize the consumer banking experience is the goal. Um, so lender, lenders have access to financial information of potential customers that could help them, you know, offer them better terms on loans than they would otherwise get. Um, we've talked about similar things in the U.S. market, where um, with Upstart this is one that we've talked about a lot recently, where they, they look at... Uh, they look at kind of a, a bigger picture of a, consum- a customer's financial data before making a lending decision. They don't just pull the FICO score and, and be done with it. So open banking can be kind of applied to situations like that as well. Um, big potential applications here. 
Um, as I mentioned, Tink is, is and will continue to be for the time being focused on the European market, um, but really kind of a big port part of Visa's strategy to um, to go beyond just its core business of being a payment network. Yeah, and you know that's an interesting point you make in Visa trying to get past that core business, and I think that's that's the business that everyone is so familiar with is, in simplest terms, Visa is the company that owns that card that's in your wallet. Mastercard is the company that gave you that card that's in your wallet. Now, I mean, anybody that follows the payment space, you know that it's far more nuanced than that, and there are a number of number of hands in that cookie jar, so to speak. But given Companies like MasterCard and Visa today, their position in the market, I mean, the conversation has, has been one lately of disruption. Smaller players, fintech, these types of companies, disrupting companies like MasterCard and Visa and rendering them quote-unquote obsolete. Now, I, I tend to think that's extremely short-sighted. I think that's a, a very short-sighted view. And part of the reason why I think that is because of just what we're seeing right here. We're seeing it with MasterCard. We're seeing it with Visa. They're making these little bolt-on acquisitions as they go along in order to build out that strategy and become more things to more people. And, and I think that what some may not think about fully is that when they make an acquisition like this, I mean, it, it just immediately plugs into this massive network. I mean, you look at... Businesses with massive networks. I mean, look at Facebook, for example, or, or I mean, look at Netflix. I mean, companies where even if you saw a mass exodus of users, it still, at the end of the day, isn't going to meaningfully dent the total number of people that are using those networks. And when you have that network, I mean, it gives you the ability to really do a lot of different things. I mean, I, I look at companies like Visa and MasterCard, to me, they seem just as relevant today. And these are the types of acquisitions that should keep them relevant for for the foreseeable future. But I, I don't know. Do you feel like these are are businesses that are? That, do you think they're going to be regulated out of the market or disrupted out of the market? Yeah, I mean, Visa's biggest obstacle to growing through acquisition is regulation. We saw that with the Plaid acquisition. Visa could afford to buy Square if it really wanted to. It couldn't get approval to do that. I would imagine antitrust concerns would be abound there. Yeah. So Visa has cited a $185 trillion global payments market, and that includes things that they're not involved in yet, like person-to-person payments, like like business-to-business uh, -business transfers, things like that. So they want to kind of branch out from their core business. Regulation is an obstacle, but these businesses are acquiring become infinitely more valuable under the under Visa's umbrella, like you mentioned. How how much more valuable do you think Instagram became when Facebook took it over? I mean, how, it's almost impossible to even quantify. I and mean, that was a one billion dollar acquisition, and now, I mean, Facebook really is. I mean, it's it's Instagram for all intents and purposes. Right, and I mean, or or YouTube when Google took when Google acquired it. Yep. Or, I mean, there, there's a bunch of examples like that where a business might have seemed like a pretty hefty price tag to pay for a startup, quote unquote. But how much more valuable does it become under that, you know, with, with Instagram paired with Facebook's bill, you know, two billion users or whatever, is it? Be, it becomes Facebook. Um, it, it's a pretty kind of crazy concept that you know Visa can acquire a small company and it, it's instantly creating billions of dollars in value. Yeah, because it's, the value it, of it's the network. open, right? It, and Visa's network is enormous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, I mean, how how universal is Visa acceptance in businesses in the U.S. now? 
Yeah. Yeah, I um, think that's just a very that's a very difficult thing to disrupt a, a powerful and widespread network. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've gone you know three months at a time without using cash, and one of the big reasons is companies like Visa and Mastercard. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. So I, I take take that as you will, but I think this is a it's a step toward diversification. I don't know how, especially for U.S. consumers, I don't know how significant this is going to be, just because it's a European focused business. Right. Um, but it's, it's definitely a step toward them diversifying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a good reminder, I mean, that uh, there, there's a whole lot going on outside of the U.S., right? I mean, this, it's, 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 a, it's a global market opportunity, and, and so it's, it's always important to remember that. Uh, J.P. Morgan in the news recently, Matt, and it is because of investments they're making in what looks like is described a private label mortgage exchange. This is something where uh, we saw these types of mortgages, ultimately mortgages that are not being backed by uh, Fannie and Freddie, this is something we saw, I think, a little bit more in the 2008-9 10 range and of course the the financial <laughs> the financial crisis that occurred then which was very tied of course to to mortgages um really really impacted this market but it seems like it's making a little bit of a comeback and you know I was reading through this story and I, and I thought it was interesting because it seems like one of the reasons why this deal matters and one of the reasons why it could end up at least to me, working out okay for J.P. Morgan is that things have changed a little bit in the way people own property, what they do with that property, right? This this sharing economy, this this Airbnb economy has given folks a new way to utilize real estate, whether it's investment property, vacation homes, or whatnot. There are restrictions that essentially allow these mortgages, that, that don't allow these mortgages to be sold to, to entities like Fannie and Freddie, um, and so perhaps there is some opportunity here. What do you think about this? What do you think about this move by J.P. Morgan? Does it make sense, or is this is this an unnecessary risk? Yeah, I like this move, and it's really important to point out to investors because when you hear alternative mortgages, especially if you were <laughs> around before the financial crisis, you you think of things like those interest only loans they used to sell, the reverse amortization loans, the zero down loans to, they were giving to people with five hundred credit scores. Uh, to buy four and five investment properties. Um, I remember when I was in college, I got pre-approved for like a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage when I had <laughs> I was waiting tables like, it, it, like that, in like two thousand six, two thousand seven. It was absolutely bananas what who they were giving credit to and how much money they were willing to lend at that point. This is not that. Um, alternative loans are making a comeback, but for two big reasons. I like that Jason just mentioned vacation and investment properties. Because there are new rules that govern how many, or specifically the percentage of Fannie and Freddie's loans that can be of those two varieties. Um, this was an obstacle when I, uh, we just bought a, a second home uh, not too long ago. And that was a big obstacle to getting a mortgage for it, um, that Fannie and Freddie can't buy too many of them anymore. So you're seeing a lot of these kind of alternative lenders um, step in and kind of facilitate those. Number two, it's because of all these jumbo loans so that, as they're called, that are that you're seeing in the market. Home values are up by like twenty percent or more in, in a lot of a lot of housing markets. The loan vol- the loan amounts are increasingly too big to be bought by Fannie and Freddie. So we're seeing a lot of these jumbo loans that would be part of this exchange that J.P. Morgan's investing in. So 
there is going to be a growing need for this, especially if housing prices still go through the roof um, for a, for a little while longer. Um, but also because of these investment in vacation homes, because Fannie and Freddie just can't buy them as much anymore. So it's it's a, definitely a need, and there's there needs to be a marketplace for lenders to buy and sell these. Because I'm sure after you refinanced, you got a letter saying your loan had been sold, and here's here's who you send your payment to now. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, yes, I send my mortgage payment to Wells Fargo. That's not who I got the mortgage through. No, we send ours now to Truist. I can't. I still can't get used to saying that. And you know what's driving me nuts with this, Matt? So it like it goes to Truist, but we're still having to log into like SunTrust, and so it's totally confusing. I mean, thankfully I got everything set up; it's just automatically paid. But we're still dealing with like two brands here in BB and T and SunTrust. They haven't fully uh, brought those together. I mean, I, I know that is a challenging deal, right? I mean, I remember working with Bank of America. Anytime there was a new bank brought into the system there, it, it wasn't like you just click a button and overnight everything was integrated. I mean, the integration takes forever. Um, I wonder, I mean, to, to your point, I mean, this it does feel like they're filling a need. Uh, it, it, at the end of the day, economics rule and where there is demand for something. I mean, someone's got to come in there with the supply. And so, I, I certainly understand uh, JP Morgan's angle from that perspective. To me, given what we know about this business, given what we know about who manages it, and Jamie Dimon, the CEO of the business, I don't look at this as, as, as a terribly risky endeavor. I mean, now I could see managers that, that perhaps are a little bit more short-term focused, it, it does seem like it could be a little bit risky. Uh, making making some bad decisions, kind of like insurance companies um, that that are more patient and just and just don't chase business. And over the longer period of time, you see that through their coverage ratio, it shows that they're efficient operators, writing good business. Uh, whereas insurance companies that chase bad business, that that pans out in the numbers eventually. I think really, I'd be concerned with banks chasing bad business, so to speak, in this market. Um, and so that that would probably be something to keep an eye on. I mean, it doesn't, I I don't know that really worrying about that from J.P. Morgan's perspective is uh, is is something that should be top of mind right now, though. Yeah, I mean, my guess is they notice this part of the mortgage business becoming more and more of their business. Uh, like like I said, the jumbo loans especially are really becoming more of a part of the business, and they just kind of wanted to get ahead of the trend. Is kind of my feeling on why they made this investment. I mean, they they. They don't want this to happen without them if, if this becomes like a real big part of the mortgage market. Yeah. So they're getting in on the ground floor. Yeah. And the jumbo mortgage, I mean, that's a really good point because that partly is a function of the market itself. And as valuations rise, those jumbo those jumbo ceilings need to rise as well, or else you're just going to have fewer and fewer people that can even participate in the market to begin with. And I mean, I've just, we've lived up here in Northern Virginia for, uh, I don't know, 11 plus years or something. And it seems like every year that jumbo rate just continues to go up and up and up. And <laughs> that Your, your area is, is jumbo mortgage central over it there. Really, <laughs> it really is. That's just the standard almost, as opposed to the exception. Well, Matt, before we take off, we've got two to watch for our listeners this week. A couple of stocks to get on their radar for one reason or another. What is the stock that you'll be watching this week, Matt? I am watching a company called Seritage Growth Properties that we mentioned on the show several times before. Uh, they recently got a new CEO, which I'm a, who I'm a big fan of. Um, and she recently announced that they are going to sell 40 to 50 of their roughly 150 properties. So up to about a third of their portfolio is going to be put up for sale. Um, Seritage's business model has always been to kind of gradually sell off non-core properties in order to reinvest the proceeds in redevelopment. 
Um, and now it just sounds like they're just trying to get a big stockpile of cash all at once um, to really supercharge this their plans. And I, I'm a big fan of this move. I think it sounds scary for a REIT to be selling a third of its properties on the open market. <laughs> um, but one, given today's real estate market, this is the time to do it. If you have property to unload, <laughs> this is the time. Um, but I, I think they're going to get some good valuations for them. I think they can, they'll have a lot of cash and I'm interested to see, see them finally really accelerate their development because they're realizing the slow and steady model that was, that the company was founded on isn't really going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So not necessarily technically financials related, but it's tied to real estate in a way, Matt. And I'm keeping an eye on Wayfair. Um, this is a company I've, I, I own shares in this. I've recommended it in one of the services that I that I lead here at the, the Fool. And um, just interesting uh, conference they participated in last week, the Jeffries Digital Consumer Conference. There were just some numbers that stood out to me that reinforced why I don't want to sell my shares anytime soon. <laughs> they talk about their market opportunity, the total available market they're addressing between Europe and North America at $840 billion, with about a 50-50 split there in both regions. So, I think it's just you know that total addressable market, total available market. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean they're chasing that entire pie, right? You want to you want to focus maybe a little bit more on the serviceable, addressable market. Regardless, eight hundred forty billion. Even if you cut that in half, I mean, that's a lot of money. And so, a large market opportunity worth uh, paying attention to. And then they just they had another a data point here I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, American savings accounts had gone from eight hundred billion dollars uh, pre-pandemic levels to over three trillion dollars post-pandemic with all of the stimulus and assistance that uh, that folks have been receiving uh, over the past year. So certainly feels like there may be some pent-up demand out there. And uh, it, it also feels like Net, uh, Wayfair is going to be one of those networks that, that really helps provide uh, for, for what folks want. And um, I mean, you and I know that shopping for the home is a never-ending uh, a never-ending endeavor, Matt. It, it, it never stops. <laughs> So, I think Wayfair is one worth keeping an eye on. But Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. I really appreciate you jumping in here as always. Great stuff on the stress tests. And uh, we'll keep an eye on what those banks are doing uh, later on uh, during the week to see if there's any any uh, story we need to, to pick back up on next Monday. All right. Always fun to talk to you. All right, folks, remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.